0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. I get a lot of questions uh, about every week on trying to understand 510k process, what's entailed, when should I do it? What's the timing and my product development efforts for preparing and submitting a 510k? What's this refuse to accept checklist? Should I be aware of that? Lots of things that um, certainly I I think would be helpful for you to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight, Guru John Spear. And... The topic of this conversation is really about 510K. What is it? High level. What do I need to do? What are some of the steps in my process? And again, we're not going to solve every single nuance of a 510K submission today, but I have a fair number of conversations on a weekly basis with folks that are not entirely clear as to you know what I need to include and ex- exclude and what are the steps and, and, you know, what are the sections and what does this refuse to accept things? So so I thought, uh, who better to talk with me about uh, a general 510K process uh, other than Mike Drews. Mike is uh, president of Vascular Sciences and a familiar guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast. So, Mike, welcome.
1: Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience.
0: All right. So we've talked, well, we talk a fair amount about regulatory submissions and we've talked, Uh, a time or two about 510Ks and things of that nature. So I thought today, let's just kind of maybe do a kind of a, a super high level recap of what a 510K is and when it's appropriate and applicable, and then we can start to dive into some of the quote process steps that a company should be in tune with as they try to get their products cleared through the FDA process. So I guess start high level, 510K, what is it? When should I consider this as a pathway?
1: Okay, John, so to start out at a high level, a 510K is one of a number of pathways to market that a company can choose to bring a medical device uh, onto the market here in the United States. What sets the 510K apart from all of the other pathways, there's essentially two criteria. One is the device has to be less than class three, which means that it has to be class two or below, and we've talked about classification many times. That's criteria for 510 K number one. Criteria for 510 K number two is it needs to be substantially equivalent. In other words, basically the same as another device, what we call a predicate device, that's already on the market here in the United States. It must be here in the US. You can't make a substantial equivalence argument to a device that has a CE mark in the EU, for example. And when I say substantial equivalence, John, What I mean by that is substantially equivalent in terms of labeling as well as technology. So we have to show that our device is basically the same, not necessarily exactly the same, but basically the same as another predicate device in terms of labeling and technology. So it has to be below class three, it has to be substantially equivalent. If you can tick those two boxes, then a 5k is certainly a pathway to market that you should consider.
0: Yeah, I don't want to dictate to folks that this is the only path for product that meets that definition. Uh, again, if, I would encourage you all to listen to some of the other episodes of the Global Medical Device podcast where Mike and I talk a lot about regulatory strategy. And and certainly, there's times where, you know, hey, 510K is a good path from a strategy standpoint, and other times where you may want to consider an alternate regulatory pathway. So, if you have any questions, comments, uh, want some feedback on that, Mike Drews from is is a pro at this, uh, so I would encourage you all to connect with him to understand what makes the most sense for from your overall strategy, whether or not five ten k is is makes the most sense. So. Keep that in your back pocket, folks. Mike Drews is here to help you with that. Well, John,
1: thank you for those kind words. Uh, I know we were going to keep this high level, but if I could just kick it up a notch or two temporarily, I mentioned the two criteria for a 510K, one being less than class three, the other being substantially equivalent. If your device is substantially equivalent, it doesn't necessarily mean that you must do a five ten k. It doesn't necessarily preclude you from doing something else, like for example, a de novo. There are many medical devices that I've worked on in the past, and I'm sure this is the same for you, John, where the decision between a five ten k versus de novo could have gone either way, and there could be advantages, for example, competitive advantages where even if the company thinks they have a good chance of doing a 510K, they might opt to consider a de novo for competitive reasons. And perhaps even in some extreme cases, they might even opt to consider doing a PMA for similar competitive reasons. So as we've talked about many times, John, at least in my regulatory world, nothing is black and white. There's always a lot of different options.
0: Yeah, I just, uh, I had the urge to say, bam, because when you said kick it up a notch, it re- reminded me of uh, Emerald Lagasse and, and his cooking. Emeril Lagasse, that's correct. <laughs> All right. So there's also a few different flavors of 510Ks and, and I, I know I'd say the workhorse, if you will. Of the regulatory pathways, and uh, at least in the U.S., is the traditional five ten k. But there's also two different, uh, a couple different flavors of five ten ks. Can you maybe compare and contrast abbreviated versus special versus traditional when one might apply over the other? Sure. The
1: most common type of five ten k, as you just mentioned, John, is what we call the traditional 510K. Uh, and this is when we're bringing a new medical device onto the market. Now, I'm sure, John, you, you and our audience both appreciate that when we say a new device is a 510K, that's a bit of an oxymoron to begin <laughs> yeah. with. But, but what, what I mean by that is a device that has not already been uh, found to be substantially equivalent or something like that. That's the traditional 510K. I think something like 70% of 510Ks go the traditional route. The next type of 510K is the special 510K. The special 510K uh, can be used in several situations, but the most common situation is if you're making a change to an existing medical device, a device that's already on the market here in the U.S. under the 510K, and you need to notify FDA of that change. It could be a change in the technology. It could be a change in the, the labeling. It could be a, you know many different types of changes, and you don't feel for whatever reasons that it's appropriate to handle that change internally via a letter to file. Then the special 510K would be uh, the mechanism to be used to notify FDA of that change. The other type of 510K, the abbreviated 510K, which is very uncommonly used, the, the special 510K, by the way, is used about 20% of the time. The abbreviated 510K has only been used less than 5% of the time. This is when you make a substantial equivalence argument based on what I call a, a, a paper comparison. In other words, there's a guidance document, there's an in- Standard, there's something you're, you're not comparing your device to another specific device. Instead, you're comparing your device to a standard that's applicable to all of those types of devices. And as we've talked about also, John, now the abbreviated 510K has been sort of morphed or, or resurrected, if you will, to now what's referred to as the skin performance based 510K. So those are the, the major types of 510Ks am i forgetting
0: any john no i I don't think so i just thought it would be helpful for folks because uh, uh, to give you like an example i was recently having a conversation with uh, a company and you know they're looking at that traditional 510k they're kind of looking for the the i'll choose my words somewhat carefully and but anyway, they're looking for kind of the quick path, so to speak. Um, I'm, we're not going to pick that one apart, but to get clearance for an initial indication for use, but then they were not entirely clear because they, they had their, their technology. They have additional use cases, indications, uh, patient population, so on and so forth that they want in the ultimate product. But they were looking at the, you know their approach was let's get a traditional 510K with an initial indication for use first. But then they were not clear as to you know what other regulatory pathway options they had to leverage for adding uh, indications, label expansions, and things of that nature. So in their scenario, the traditional might be the first uh, foray or entry into the to the market, where uh, maybe several months later they may follow on with like a special five ten k and be able to use their own product as a predicate
1: absolutely correct john and and again this is going to be a high level discussion but let's use this as an opportunity to to kick things up a notch or two so you're right usually the quickest simplest cheapest easiest way to get a device onto the market is with a traditional 510k as long as you can tick those two basic requirements less than class 3 and make a substantial equivalence argument and by the way john let's also remind our audience that one of the most common reasons why 510Ks are rejected is because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. So that's not a trivial topic. But assuming that you can get your initial device on the market as a 510K with, say, a single indication, you can always go back to the FDA later in the form of a label expansion and add additional indications. That additional indication might be added via another subsequent traditional 510K. It might be added by a de novo, it might be added by many different things it really depends on how different your your indication your new indication is compared to the last but for those that are not familiar with the label expansion idea john the metaphor that i like to use is like in baseball you know it's the difference between swinging for a single versus swinging for a home run everything else being equal i would prefer to swing for a home run but the problem is when you swing for a home run you have a higher likelihood of striking out so in this very risk averse industry that we work in today, I like to give my customers another option. You don't want to swing for a home run, you don't want to bring a device onto the market with, you know, five or 10 different in- indications at one time. Fine. Swing for a base hit. The batter gets up, they get a base hit, the, the batter runs to first, the next batter gets up, they get a base hit, the runner moves from first to second. At the end of the day, you end up at the same place. In other words, all the runners get around the bases. The question is Do you do it all at once, i.e. a home run or a grand slam? Or do you do it as a series of baby steps, as individual base hits or, or doubles or triples and so on? So that's the idea of a label expansion. And, of course, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. But, again, I just want to emphasize, because I see a lot of people make this mistake, just because your previous device was brought onto the market as a 510K, doesn't necessarily mean that your next device also has to be brought onto the market as a 510k it may be a de novo
0: or something else for sure for sure so f- folks again this is a there's lots of twists and turns and nuances and you know it's good to think your strategy out and make sure you have a, a thorough plan and and understand the pros and cons of all these different options it's it's not for the faint of heart it's not Always simple and trivial. There are, you know, and like I said, pros and cons. So, Mike, another thing that I think a lot of people that I talk with are confused about. Well, there's a few things, and I thought we could could explore each of those a little bit in more depth. But timing. When can I submit a five ten k? And I guess I'll add a few more words. To that when during my product development process uh, should I be at a point where I'm ready to? prepare compile and submit my 510k submission to Fda
1: well great question John and I think in fact it's it's two questions one is when can you submit and the second is when you when should you start uh, preparing or thinking about it so let's talk about the uh, when should you submit first the simple answer to that question John is you can submit as soon as you get all your ducks in a row in other words as soon as you have uh, all of your development work done. Obviously, you have to be at the point of design freeze. You need to have your final V&V uh, verification and validation testing all in order. You need to have all of your, your documentation in place. So basically, when you know when you have all that stuff that goes into the 510K, that's when you can submit. Now, sometimes companies will ask me, there's one piece of information that's holding up the Joe, it could be you know a sterilization validation, it might be some biocompatibility testing. So they asked me, is it possible for us to submit, say, ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of the package? And then as soon as this additional information becomes available, we would we would submit that. In the past, John, in the regulatory vernacular, that's what we've called a promissory note. Basically the company says, Okay, we will submit, you know, ninety-nine of it, but the the packaging validation, that will be available in in three months, and we'll send that to you then. In the past, promissory notes have been accepted by the FDA. Today, they will still accept them, but they're very, very hesitant to do so. Why? Because regrettably, John, there have been companies that have promised to do things that have never, in fact, followed through. And as a result, FDA has gotten burned. And so they've become very cautious about um, about accepting a promissory note. So my advice to companies today, John, and I would love to hear if you agree or maybe have a different spin on this is, unless you really have extenuating circumstances, uh, you really need to um, not rely on a promissory note and try to get everything submitted all together at one time if that's possible. Do you agree, John, or do you have a different um, view?
0: No, I just totally agree. And I I go back to certainly early in my career and even probably, I don't know, I'll just say a few years ago. I can't remember exactly and time flies when you're having fun, but back in the day, you used to be able to do the I promise or the promissory notice for things like biocompatibility, for things like sterilization validation, for things like electromechanical mechanical safety, for things like shelf life. And I, I think there's still a common I don't know how common, but I know I still talk to a lot of folks that still think they can do that. And I'm like, no, you're uh, that's almost grounds for rejection. And we'll talk about the RTA piece here in a moment. But I don't I haven't heard of a company being successful of the I promise statements in a 510K these days, especially for sort of those big hitters, if you will, of biocompatibility, sterilization, electrical safety and and packaging and shelf life and things like that. I, I, I think those days are gone.
1: Well, just to be clear, John, you can still do it. There's nothing (laughs) technically that can prevent you from doing it. And I suspect one of the reasons why you haven't heard of it is because obviously information like that is not generally available, uh, at least not publicly. Um, I can tell you based on my personal experience that I still on occasion do, I I am successful in getting FDA to accept a promissory note. Even, Even recently, I've done that. But as I said, there needs to be extenuating circumstances uh, you know as we 've talked about many many times before, John, you have to decide you have to choose to uh, to pick your battles right so if this is something that is worth fighting for, then I will do it on behalf of the company, but if it 's not, then i won't and one other thing i 'll mention quickly, John to transition us to, the, to your second question, and that is how early in the process do you, do you start planning and thinking about this kind of stuff? Um, if you think that a promissory note is in order, Um, for your particular product for whatever reasons. um, I would be taking that to the FDA in advance as part of my pre-submission meeting or pre-sub just to let them know that way, you know, if there's a concern, we'll find out about it sooner rather than later, and you won't get dinged on a refuse to accept or something because of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think there are scenarios where it does make sense. So, you know, like you said, pick your battles and do so wisely. A moment ago, you said a couple of key words that I want to, I guess, explore a little bit further. Um, and I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but you talked about the time uh, to submit is when your development is, quote, done and you're at a design freeze and and you've completed verification and, and validation. Um, You know, obviously a lot of these things that we're, or maybe not obviously, but hopefully obviously a lot of the things that we're talking about, these I promise scenarios, technically speaking, those would be verification and or validation activities. So, you know, folks uh, do keep that in mind that uh, you'll need to have as much of, uh, if not all of, that stuff done uh, in order to be ready for a 510k submission. I guess thoughts about that before I dive in uh, to the next uh, couple of topics on this five ten k discussion
1: Well, the only other thing that I would remind our audience you know you you can go to the fda's website and see in detail what you know, the different sections, the different types of the information that FDA is expecting to see in a 510K, one of the things that I want to just point out to our audience that you do not have to have for a 510K is you do not have to have FDA registration. That's a whole separate and distinct discussion. And that gets into, you know, the quality management system and the design controls and all that kind of stuff. So you do not have to have any of those ducks in a row for a 510K. You obviously have to be FDA-registered before you can market your product here in the United States, but strictly speaking, for a 510K, it's not necessary. And we have had some discussion at FDA, as you and your audience know, John, I I work for a consultant to the agency as well, so I'm privy to some of these discussions. We have had some discussion in the agency about um, adding that kind of a requirement as part of the 510K. For the record, I've always been against it. Why? Because there's been a small number of medical devices that I've been involved with, granted not many, but a small number where the company wanted to get a 510K, but they never in a million years intended to manufacture or market or distribute that device. For example, they wanted to use that device as their own label expansion, as we talked about earlier, John, as a, as a predicate, Or they wanted to use that 510K to demonstrate competence to uh, potential investors. In other words, here, we've already got this simple device on the market. We're not going to market it, but we've got it through the FDA. Give us a bunch more money. And now we can do it again for a, a more complex device. So simply put, John, why should I jump through all of these manufacturing hoops to demonstrate that I can manufacture a product, a device that I never, in fact, intend to manufacture? So that's the, the thing that I wanted to point out that was not included or not required as part of a, a 510K. It is some of those manufacturing requirements, as you know, are required in the PMA world, but not in the 510K or, for that matter, the de novo world.
0: Yeah, and that's a really good point. I want to dive back into that one a little bit more uh, in depth here in a moment. But I want to remind folks, I'm talking with Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences And a regulatory pro, uh, the best in the business, Uh, certainly can help any of you listening today with sound regulatory strategies for getting your products to market. So uh, definitely feel free to reach out to him uh, and, and learn more about how he can help you. I also want to remind you all that Greenlight Guru, we're here to help as well. Uh, We have the only medical device QMS platform in the industry today. It's designed by medical device professionals for and only for medical device professionals such as yourself. So be sure to check that out. Go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. Mike briefly mentioned the term design controls. I want to unpack that a little bit too. But we have uh, specific workflows within Greenlight Guru platform designed to help you document, manage, and maintain your design control, your design history file, your risk management activities. So many of our customers are in a similar situation as you. They're trying to get their products cleared and they're finding great success on the Greenlight platform. So go check that out, www.greenlight.guru. Mike, you just mentioned something that I think is also a misnomer for a lot of people. They think that when they prepare their 510K submission, that they do need to submit... The manufacturing related information that they need need to provide you know their manufacturing process validation documentation and and there's a misnomer about their uh quality system. I think they're likening the five ten k process similar to getting ISO certification and c e marking so might be worth explaining folks a little bit about sort of the the myths behind that
1: yeah, good question, so let's talk about that a little bit. So in the PMA world, if we're talking about class three devices, then there are manufacturing requirements that that go into uh, part of the PMA submission. Granted, the regulatory requirements for the PMA for manufacturing are very nebulous. They're very sort of vague. But there are manufacturing requirements in there. You have to include some amount of information about your manufacturing process in your PMA. How much information, that's very much subject to discretion, but you need to to include some. And the reason, quite frankly, John, is because in the class three world, as you can appreciate, the devices are obviously higher risk, typically life-supporting or life-sustaining. They're typically indicated for more complex pathophysiologies, probably for patients that have more comorbidities. From an engineering perspective, the technologies for uh, class Three devices are often more complex than for uh, Class Two or lower devices. So for all of those reasons, it makes sense that we include manufacturing information uh, in a PMA submission. For the 510 k and as I mentioned for the de novo John, there is no manufacturing requirement at least right now. Again, we have had some discussions at the agency about including those. For the record, I'm actually in favor of including those because even though, in general, the 510K and the de novo, de novo devices are less risky and simpler in technology compared to Class 3 devices, still, in the 510K universe, our technologies are becoming more and more complicated all the time. And so, as an engineer, I find it difficult to separate that this. Of the device from the process that we use to manufacture it, those two things go go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, so we do not have to include those, but I sometimes will include them, sort of as an optional section in a 510k. But obviously, we're not required to do so, at least not right now.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think that this is a certainly a gray area topic <laughs> uh, all by itself. But I, I see a lot of companies are when they learn this that it's they get maybe a little too cavalier. They're like, oh, well, that means I don't have to do that design control stuff and that risk stuff and that quality <laughs> management system stuff that, that you're always talking about, John. I can do that later. In fact, I had a company I was talking to the other day. You know, they were evaluating whether or not Greenlight Guru might be a good option for them. And they're like, oh, well, we've been talking to this, quote, FDA consultant. and And she told us that we didn't need to worry about any design controls, and we didn't need to worry about risk and we didn't need to worry about into anything quality system related until after we get clearance. And I just, I mean, if I wasn't bald, I would have yanked the the hair out of my head because that is that is that is bad advice. That's <laughs> bad advice. Well, I'm glad you said
1: it was the woman regulatory consultant because that means that it was not me. It was let not you. Absolutely crystal. Uh, yeah, let me be absolutely crystal here, clear, John, because and I'm pretty sure that you'll agree with me on this. When I say that, those kinds of things, your, your quality, your, your design controls, and so on, are not required as part of a 510K. Of course, that's factually correct, but by no means am I trying to imply that those things are not important and that we shouldn't do them. On the contrary, as you and I have talked about many times in the past, John... Young- it comes to design controls, everything in the design controls is what I call, you know, prudent engineering, basic engineering, and we should be doing those things anyway. But you asked me the question, you know, what are we required to to do? What are we required to have for a 510K? And that's the basis of my response. Would
0: you agree with with that, John? Uh, Absolutely. So let's uh, move on to a couple other topics, I guess. The next topic that I hear a lot of confusion about is clinical evidence, Uh, and whether or not it is required for my 510K submission. So what are your thoughts about that?
1: Great question, John. And as usual, you know, I have a slightly different approach to all of this than many other people. Bottom line, there is no requirement anywhere in the 510K that says you do not have to have clinical data. And similarly, there's no requirement anywhere in the PMA that says you must have clinical data. In other words, a lot of people think that a 510K doesn't need clinical data, whereas a PMA does. It is absolutely not the case. The decision on whether or not you need clinical data, in my opinion, is not a function of the regulatory pathway. In other words, it doesn't matter if it's a 510K, de novo, PMA, HDE, whatever it is. The decision of whether you need clinical data is determined based on what my attorney friends like to call the totality of the evidence. In other words, if all of your evidence added together from benchtop testing, from uh, subject matter experts, from the literature, from looking at predicates and so on, if the totality of your evidence is sufficient to show that your product is safe and effective or to show that it's substantially equivalent, then likely you will not need any additional clinical data to, to, to shore that up. On the other hand, if the totality of your evidence is not sufficient to show those things, then you probably will need clinical data to to shore that up. This goes right back to the most basic requirements of the 510K, John, which have not changed since the 510K was created in 1976. And that is, as long as your intended use is the same, your technology can either be the same or it can be different. Well, suffice it to say, the more similar your technology is, to a predicate, the less likely you will need clinical data as part of your 510k submission. On the other hand, the more different your technology is, if, for example, your techn- your technological differences raises additional questions of safety and efficacy and or changes the overall risk, then you're probably going to need clinical data. So bottom line, it's not a binary decision, John. It's not a, you know, I'm doing a 510K, therefore, I do not need clinical data, or alternatively, I'm doing a PMA, therefore, I do need clinical data. It's a heck of a lot more complicated. And one other thing that I'll just mention quickly, John, and I would love to hear your response to this because you're right. This is an area where a lot of people in our industry just don't understand. When I say it's not a binary decision, a lot of people ask me, you know, do I need to do a clinical trial or not? That, to me, is not a binary decision. In other words, it's a matter of how much. In other words, if you're going to need to do a clinical trial, does it need to involve 10 patients or 100 patients or 1,000 patients or, you know, what's the number? So we don't live in a world that's black and white. You know, we live in a, in a world that's infinite uh, number of, of shades of gray. And the, um, I mentioned briefly the, the pre-submission meeting, John. Most of my pre-submission meetings have three common questions And the third question is almost always addressing the necessity for clinical data. In other words, we're not going to do a clinical trial, and here are all the reasons why, or we are going to do a clinical trial, and this is what the trial design is going to look like, the number of patients, the number of sites, inclusion and exclusion criteria, endpoints, and so on and so on. All of that should, stuff, in my opinion, John, should be presented uh, to the FDA long in advance of the submission in the form of a pre-sub meeting, uh, and definitely not at the point of the actual submission itself.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be a question I was going to ask, so we might as well ask it now. So should any... we'll just leave it, any submission that I plan for FDA, should I always do a pre-submission or maybe a different way to ask the question, is there ever a scenario where I should not do a pre-submission in this day and age?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question, John. Obviously, pre-submission meetings are not required, so no company, company is under any obligation to do one, but I can tell you the vast majority of devices that I'm involved with uh it's become the rule rather than the exception to do the pre sub meeting. I just think for a whole bunch of reasons I look at it as cheap insurance. Are there situations where a pre sub might not be warranted? Uh yeah, if you have a device if if you have a device that, that is what I call a slam dunk five ten K. In other words, there's absolutely no question about substantial equivalence and there's absolutely no question about risk because remember those are the the two vital components of the 510k you need to show substantial equivalence and you need to address risk compared to the predicate if there are no questions whatsoever um, and all of the testing that you're planning on doing is all you know sort of standard generic Testing and you're not worried about anybody asking for clinical data, and you don't think there's a possibility that FDA might not see this as substantially equivalent and therefore recommend a de novo. Then sure, a company can proceed just directly to the to the submission and not bother with a five, with a um, pre sub. But uh, I don't know about you, John. Is uh, in this world that we live in today, I don't get involved with that many slam dunk five ten ks anymore. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, I nor nor do I. <laughs> Fair point. All right. And by so, the way, um, yeah.
1: taking that one step further, um, because of all of the controversy that's gone on around the five ten k in the last few years, uh, you know, much of that we've talked about in other discussions. I've taken uh, uh, devices to the agency where I thought were you know very legitimate five ten k's, and FDA pushed back. In some cases, pushed back hard and said, we don't see this as a 510K, for example, it does introduce a new risk not in the predicate. In the case that I'm referring to, it was such an esoteric risk. It was kind of like the risk that the Earth could stop to fall around the sun tomorrow. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a minuscule risk, right? But because they're taking a more literal interpretation of the, the 510K regulation, specifically the risk regulation, remember, John, the regulation itself has not changed at all since the regulation was created in 1976, but FDA is taking a more literal um, uh, interpretation of that, uh, of, that risk, uh, of that risk regulation. And one step further, John, I see it vary from group to group within CDRH. So, for example, you know, the orthopedic folks might dif- might have a slightly different take on risk than cardiovascular versus, you know, um, OBGYN or something like that. So, bottom line, you know, there aren't that many situations anymore where I would probably say to a company, you know what, it's not, you, you don't have to worry about a pre-sub. It's not worth it for you. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often
0: anymore. Yeah. All right. So, I thought um, we could kind of start to I guess lead toward a wrap up of the conversation, but just a brief high level recap so far. So the time to submit a 510K is when your device is quote done and you have design freeze and you're through verification and validation. So, and again, folks go to the FDA website. Uh, they have uh, the, the table of contents and some explanation and guidance documents, et cetera, et cetera, on uh, the information that you need to provide within that 510K submission. So. The details are there. Uh, it's uh, pretty specific uh, and pretty predictable, generally speaking, as far as what section one is and what section two is and so on and so forth. So, do go to the FDA uh, website for, for those specific details and we'll provide a link uh, to the text that accompanies this. But I thought we could start to wrap things up. So, I put everything together in my 510k submission, I send it to FDA, then what happens? I mean, we we enter into this RTA phase. So what does that look like and any tips or pointers for companies uh, to get through that step?
1: So in a nutshell, John, the FDA review process can be broken into two steps. The first step is what we call the administrative review. And then the second step is what we call the, the scientific, or sometimes people refer to it as the substantive review. In the administrative review, this is where essentially a bean counter at FDA has your submission on one side of their desk, and their are uh, refused to accept or RTA checklist on the other. And they're literally going through section by section. Do you have this section? Check. Do you have this section? Check. Do you have this signature? Do you have that form? And so on. Um, so, uh, so, so. Bottom line, that's just that's just administrative, right? And here's an interesting statistic for you, John. Uh, back in 2013, 60% of uh, 510Ks that were submitted to the agency, 60% of them were rejected on administrative review. Now, more recently, that number is hovering around. 35 to 40%. But nonetheless, having a third or maybe as many as two-thirds of, of submissions being kicked back on administrative review, I think, quite frankly, is, is embarrassing as an industry. I've said many times that there's no reason why any submission should be rejected on administrative review when that happens that is 100% the company's fault. It is not the FDA's fault. And this is exactly why FDA has put out the refuse to accept guidance, not just for the 510K, which was finalized uh, last year in 2019, but three other similar guidances were also put out and finalized last year. There's the equivalent of the RTA checklist for the PMAs, the RTA checklist for de novos, and uh, the RTA checklist for pre-submission meetings. We can put links on the website to all of these guidances, John. For but sure. Bottom line, you know, we should make sure that our our submissions are not rejected based on administrative review. The second step of the process is scientific review. This is when the FDA actually takes a look at what, in my opinion, is the most important stuff—the content of your submission. In other words the logic of your substantial equivalence argument the rationale of your risk mitigation strategy the details of your testing matrix are you doing the appropriate testing are you doing the testing the right way the analysis of your statistical data you know do they do they agree with your your conclusions all of that kind of stuff if a submission you know comes back uh, because of questions or problems on scientific review then that's fair game that's Fda's job and quite frankly I say Bring it on, but if a submission gets kicked back on administrative review, and by the way, one other thing I'll mention quickly, John, you and I in a recent discussion talked about the um, the eStar program, the electronic submission template and, and resource uh, form that's now available. All Love of these guidances that. that I mentioned a moment ago, the eStar program as well, these are all attempts for FDA to help industry minimize the problems that are, are happening on administrative review because even though the 510K has been around for nearly 50 years, John, people still screw it up in terms of the paperwork.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and folks, the E-Star uh, pilot program that Mike mentioned, um, we did a recent podcast episode on that. It is on uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can find that. Uh, it was published about a week or so ago or I guess mid-March, I guess I should specify the date because I don't know when this is going to go live. But the administrative review, you're right. I mean, it's good to hear that the industry has um, reduced the rejections, um, but it's still inexcusable. And folks, it's not like the FDA administrator is working from some super secret checklist. It is readily available to you. Uh, in fact, I encourage folks that are going through the 510 K process to use the RTA checklist on the, as a kind of their own final check before they submit it to FDA and maybe even put comments into where that particular item can be found, what page number, what section, et cetera, et cetera, and even include that as part of that submission that you send to FDA. So I, I don't know if those ever get read, but at, at least you're using this as a, a final QC, if you will. So any thoughts about that?
1: yeah I would agree with that, John, and I know we we need to wrap this up, but I'll give a quick example. So one of the most common reasons why a uh, submission is rejected on administrative review is because a section is missing. Well, my advice to companies is very simple. put yourself in the shoes of a reviewer. If there's a section that's missing, the reviewer doesn't know if it's why it's missing. In other words, is it missing because it's not applicable to your device or, is it missing because you just simply didn't know about it or forgot about it? So never leave a section uh, blank. Always, at the very least, write not applicable if it's not, you know, a section is not applicable to you. Like, um, for example, uh, well, uh, that's okay. I have lots of examples, but uh, so, so at the very least, write not applicable. But usually, John, I take it one step further um, i 'll explain you know why it 's not applicable. There was a famous case i 've heard a few people uh, reference this a company failed to indicate that vinyl gloves do not contain software or met electrical safety requirements <laughs> so obviously to anybody with an IQ of more than five they 're going to understand that vinyl don't contain software and don't, uh, you know, have electrical safety requirements. But don't just leave that section blank. Say that art that section is not applicable because vinyl gloves don't contain software and they don't have any electrical components, right? So, so um, what I want to try to do, John, is I want to demonstrate to my FDA friends that I know what the heck that I'm doing, that I'm not forgetting anything. Uh, as I said, put yourself in the shoes of of the reviewer. They have no idea if you leave a section. Off, or if you leave a section blank, why you're leaving it blank. This is exactly why, unfortunately, we have all these RTA guidances. This is exactly why we have the E Star program. This is exactly why we even have a few companies out there that are specializing in the software to help companies prepare. 510Ks and other kinds of submissions because I'm sorry, the uh, the 510K program has been around now for 50 years. There's no reason why we should still be having these um, administrative or paperwork problems.
0: I totally agree. And another common thing that I, uh, I know you've shared in the past when you and I've talked is that statement called indications for use, it, it finds its way I mean, there's a separate section in a 510k just for the indications for use, but that statement is repeated uh, at least a handful of times in other sections of a 510k, and it is amazing how many times that statement is inconsistent with your uh, a company's own submission. So, folks, do yourself a favor and and take care of the simple things. Let's let's hopefully we as an industry can reduce that administrative rejection down to you know a single digit percentage because we still have a long, long way to go. And um, Mike, I know you and I could talk for literally for days about 510Ks and regulatory submissions. Uh, and I'd like to leave it here for right now. Folks, uh, some some actionable tips and pointers, some suggestions for you all on how to to manage the 510K process, a little bit more insights into what that looks like, when to do it, and, and those sorts of things. And certainly would encourage you to submit comments and feedback to Mike and me. Uh, you know, as you know, he and I, we engage in, in episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast every so often and and love to hear your feedback. What's important to you and what's going on in your world? What do you need some more tips, pointers and, and guidance on? We'd be happy to engage in those topics. So, Mike, thank you so much for uh, being my guest on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast.